Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com where our shows are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can find us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes anywhere in the known universe, day or night, night and day. But since nobody's going anywhere, you'll be glued to your computer but you can use any one of these 21st century personal digital devices that are keeping us all connected in this age of pandemic. We've entered a new era in human history. We're living in the disaster movie, people. Uh, we didn't, uh, we watched it, but we didn't realize it was going to happen, but it's happening. But you know, even in a time of pandemic, Things just keep on going. The politicians politic, our representatives represent. Uh, there are folks down in Washington and in state houses around the country doing the work of the people. And at some point, we're going to get back to the business of uh, who runs America, choosing leaders, and what we're going to do about expanding opportunity and recreating the culture that we had that seems so jeopardized now. And of course, with COVID-19 rampant, political leadership becomes more important than ever, as we can see with what's going on in the current White House, with the inconsistencies uh, and the distractions that we have seen. You know how important leadership is. Um, Matt Robeson and I, who are co-hosts of this show, uh, are really delighted to welcome Ted Johnson uh, as our guest today. Uh, Ted is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. His work explores the role that race plays in electoral politics issues, framing disparities in public outcomes, and he has had a storied career for a young person a national fellow at New American, research manager at Deloitte, retired commander in the U.S. Navy, um, service as a White House fellow, military professor at the Naval War College, speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and his work has appeared in lots of very uh, high-end publications. He teaches law and public policy to master's and doctoral students. Um, and he's, uh, his background in education includes a BS in mathematics from Hampton University and an ALM with a concentration in international relations from Harvard, not to mention a doctorate of law and policy at Northeastern. So it's always nice to hear all about yourself while you're still alive, Ted. And uh, we'd like to welcome you to Off the Record. Thanks so much for having me. You know, uh, there, there's an ad running on television uh, about the, uh, I think it's the Dos Equis guy, who, who they say is the most interesting person on earth. But, I, but after, after learning about you and your bio, I disagree. I think you're the most interesting person on earth, as far as I can tell. How, how, did, how did it happen that you transitioned from mathematician to U.S. Naval commander to White House fellow, now to a nationally recognized policy uh, scholar on American politics and, and race in, in our elections and policy. I mean, what propelled you? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it wasn't because of good planning. 
Uh, this this wasn't <laughs> the, the way I'd mapped it out from the beginning. I kind of stumbled into everything and have just been fortunate enough that it all worked out. I think the biggest driver, you know, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I was born in 75, so I was, I'm a child of the 80s. And my parents, though, were children of the Jim Crow South. And they were the first generation of their family to go to college. They worked for IBM for three decades apiece. And when I went off to college, the, I think the driving force was two things. One, do something you love. You can be whatever you want to be, so go be that. But two, make sure it's financially uh, rewarding because you can't come home afterwards. You know, it's our job with you is done once you're finished with college. So I was good at math through high school and decided that uh, math probably wasn't going to pay a lot, but engineering would. So I went off to college to be an engineer, and that lasted all of three semesters because I loved the math of engineering, but hated all of the design associated with it. Sure. And so it was at this time where I was kind of aimless. Um, I wasn't happy with my major. My grades were, were fine, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And math wasn't going to be enough because I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to go to grad school. I didn't know what careers there were out there. And just in this summer where I'm kind of aimless, uh, we get my parents get a new neighbor who turns out to be the officer in charge of the Navy recruiting district in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so she finds out that my parents have a kid in college who's majoring now in math and says, oh, I have tons of programs and money for him. And um, so I enlisted in the Navy during my, the fall of my sophomore year of college because I wanted a job after school. And the military was a guaranteed job. There was security and sure. it was an honorable profession for my, that my parents could be uh, proud of and, and yeah. that's 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 how I ended up in the military man oh man oh man and then the transition from the military to White House fellow and right. and and your your work as a professor um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so the the good thing about the military is every three years you get a new job and um, I use my math background to become a cryptologist in the military and that opened up tons of doors and what was supposed to be a four-year career turned to just over 20, about 20 years and nine months. Um, so my year as a White House fellow in 2011, 2012 was while I was still in the military service. Um, and the fellowship is for 11 to 19 Americans from across the country, come to Washington, learn about the inner workings of Washington. And the only government employees that can apply for this program are military officers. And so I was fortunate enough to be one of those. The year before I'd done that, I was at the Naval War College where I was a professor. And I, that's where I sort of got the love of teaching graduate students there. But what really happened was during my year as a White House fellow, um, I got to see all of domestic politics, how that worked, how decisions were made. And I went there expecting to find the group of geniuses in the back of the room that make sure everything works in the country, despite what you see on TV, only to know, to, to arrive and see that there is no such room. It's just very smart people doing the best they can for the country. And I figured, you know, that seems interesting. I could probably do some of that, too. Uh, the year after my fellowship was when uh, the spate of killings or, or interactions, rather, deadly interactions between black men and police departments around the country started populating cable news networks every evening. Right. And I'm the father of three black boys. And I started thinking about how uninterested I was in learning more about what China was doing in cyberspace. 
and more interested in learning about domestic politics and ways that I could create a better, safer, um, more prosperous country for my kids to grow up in and feel like they weren't targeted or excluded or being discriminated against. And that's where that year as a White House fellow was what began my transition out of the military into the think tank space. So I spent the last couple of years of military service getting a doctorate and, uh, and then retired in 2016 and started trying to find a place where I could reinvent myself into a public policy racial justice. Well, that is uh, a great uh, a great jumping off point for my first question. And Matt, forgive me if I'm monopolizing, but I have a very brief story to tell. And uh, I went to uh, uh, Congress in uh, 2006 from New Hampshire. Uh, and I um, had run in 2004, didn't make it, ran again, got in in 2006, got elected president of the freshman class. And don't you know, all of a sudden in 2007, uh, I started getting all these calls from uh, various, um, uh, various uh, candidates um, who uh, wanted to talk to me. And one of them was a, a young, um, a brand new senator from Illinois. His name was Barack Obama. <laughs> I had heard him speak at the 20, um, uh, was it? Uh, let's oh, see, four. 20, oh, yeah. 2004 convention. And I thought, you know, this, this is a guy with a future. A lot of people thought that. But he showed up in my congressional office. Uh, it was an office that nobody could find on the third floor of Cannon. But he made his way there. Showed up all alone. No AIDS, no nobody, not wearing a jacket, walked in, hey, Hodes, he said, hey, Hodes, how you doing? We sat down, we had a three-hour conversation um, in which I just came away blown away by his intelligence and grace. And during the course of the conversation, uh, we talked about our lives, we talked about all kinds of things, and he had things pretty well planned out in terms of the possibility of his running for president. And I have one question for him, among others, but one really important question. I said, so, uh, Senator, he said, call me Barack. I said, Barack, there's, on, uh, there's only one question. I said, how can a black man run for president in the United States of America? Don't you think that's an issue? And he looked at me with a big smile and he said, you think? <laughs> and uh, so, so that was a pretty fundamental question. But of course, you won. How did how did we pull that off? And what have been the impacts of the Obama presidency on African-American voters' views and expectations and politics? Have they changed and have they been abused over the period of time since Barack left office? Yeah, it's, it's you know, he is a phenom. And I think that is something that in 08, we, I think we got a sense of that, but the more time that passes, from when he left office, I think the more of an appreciation we get for just how unique of a politician and person he, he was, and especially for the time. Um, so the, the one thing I find fascinating about his, his backstory and his campaigning was uh, he was interviewed, um, maybe it was in the Atlantic uh, a couple of years ago, and he said that because he grew up with his white mother and his white grandparents, that when he was campaigning in places like Iowa or New Hampshire and walking into a room full of white people, he felt comfortable because that's how he grew up. 
Um, whereas most black politicians wouldn't have that same background and would and would um, would sort of be in campaign mode instead of relaxed and, and just sort of talking. And so he had that advantage because um, he was able to go to the Iowa's and New Hampshire's and feel at home. And that authenticity and comfort level, I think, came across. Similarly, when he walked around black audiences, when he engaged those places, um, he was able to sort of code switch and immediately feel comfortable and authentic in those spaces. And frankly, I think his wife uh, helped in that sort of that acceptance among black voters. So everyone was sort of um, really inspired by his 04 speech. And then he says he's going to run for president and Hillary Clinton, who's much more well-known, much more well-financed, is also running. So even if the country thought that maybe we were ready for a black president, there was no, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, conclusion that it was going to be him or that this 08 was going to be the year. And I think because of his background, that, that helped him. The biggest thing is um, when he won Iowa and tied in New Hampshire, essentially, he showed the nation, white voters and black voters especially, that he was capable of competing against Clinton and winning. And when he showed that his candidacy was viable and that he was an electable candidate, Black voters who wanted to be part of history all the way back, you know, Black voters supported Jesse Jackson in 84, 88 by large margins. Um, they were now convinced that this guy could do it. And because of the demographics of the Democratic Party, if you get the support of the vast majority of Black voters, you have the inside track to the nomination. And I thought, I think 08 showed us the power of the Black vote in the Democratic primary, but also the charisma and the once in the generation political talent that Barack Obama is, and, and certainly was in, in eight. You know, so, let, Matt, oh, before, before we oh, jump yeah, in, uh, we're going to take a short break to hear from the folks who keep us uh, on the station. Matt Robeson and I are co-hosting Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We have the great pleasure of speaking with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, um, a remarkable a person with a remarkable career who is teaching law and public policy to masters and doctoral students working on a book about national solidarity and race relations. We're going to get into a lot more interesting stuff about politics and race in America uh, when we come back after this word from the good folks who keep us on the air. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM streaming live over the Googles at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So when you're hunkered in your bunker and you want to binge listen, you can go to nhtalkradio.com and listen to the great archives of all our past shows. We have we have phony phony summit conferences with Vladimir Putin and uh, Donald Trump. We've got all kinds of wonderful things you can find there. Deeper dives into politics with Matt Robeson, who's, uh, who writes for alternet.org and has a terrific blog called amoreperfectunionforum.com. We're talking with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice about politics and race in America. And before we took a break, Matt Robeson was about to ask 
a really good question. <laughs> Great lead-in. I uh, wanted to pick up on uh, one of Ted's comments right before the break about Barack Obama's ability to relate to African-American and white audiences, and, and maybe by dint of his background uh, and, and familiarity and comfort. It's a real challenge in uh, political communications to have that clear relation and to talk about issues of race uh, in a way that connects. I, I was uh, in the audience for that 2004 convention speech, and I just remember the whole room hit the floor without regard to race, right? It really connected um, across racial bounds. And one of the things that I found in my work on Capitol Hill uh, for my many Republican colleagues, and I, I come from a time where Republicans and Democrats still work together, is that there's no faster way to offend a Republican than to portray their party as a party of bigotry. And yet there's no getting around the fact that there are Republican policies like voter ID laws um, that have very clear racial implications and impacts. So, Ted, I was wondering if you could give us any insight on, are there lessons learned? Are there more effective ways to address issues that, that have racial implications, that, that uh, are, are particular salience to the African-American community in a way that doesn't create that blowback from the persuadable Republican audience that Democrats want to connect with? Yeah, this is it, this. It's a tough question. Um, so, if if we're using Barack Obama as a uh, a model of a, a particular way forward, um, the thing he did in his 2004 speech is he called on the nation's civil religion as a way of unifying us. So when he said things like "There's no red America, no blue America, only the United States of America," he was essentially saying the only thing that unites us is a belief in, these, in this set of principles. And so we can differ on policy, we can differ on worldview, on, on uh, different parts of our communities and things, but the thing that unites us is a belief in equality, liberty, and these sort of these self-evident truths. And so he also learned very early on that he could not talk about race in a very explicit way. Um, remember, he, gave, he had to give that very long speech on race after the Jeremiah Wright issue came up, something that he didn't say, but because his pastor said something at, in some church that maybe Obama wasn't even in the audience for, Obama had to give this long speech. But he really learned about race when the professor, uh, Skip Gates from Harvard, was arrested trying to get into his home. And, Severe summit. Right. And o Obama said, you know, the Cambridge Police Department acted stupidly. And when he said that, his approval rating among white Americans dropped seven points and never recovered for the rest of his presidency, whereas his approval rating among African Americans didn't budge either after that moment or pretty much for the rest of the presidency. And so he learned that when he talks about race, the country polarizes, usually along lines of race. And so the only way he could effectively govern is to call on those civil religious principles that talks more about um, the things we hold dear and, um, you know, that we are a country founded on an idea that if you work hard, you can get ahead. And so what his presidency teaches us, I think what we've learned is that when black politicians on a national stage, stage talk forthrightly about race, they're going to further polarize the electorate. And when they talk about America and then latch on principles of equality and justice to the American story, they're more likely to, to, to um, have success across the aisle. Now, even though Barack Obama did that, 
he was still met on day one by Republicans saying our job is to make sure he's a four term president and not get anything done. And so there's some of this you're just not going to overcome. But you make your road a little bit easier by appealing to the nation on civil religious grounds than to be someone who's an explicit truth teller on race that then makes the institutions even more incapable of functioning because of how polarized we are on, on, on uh, the race, issues of race um, broadly and then how they impact us on specific socioeconomic factors. And so that's not a comfortable answer. Um, that that kind of makes you feel a little icky that you can't tell the truth. But politics and policy are more about outcomes than they are about making people face the truth sometimes. And good politicians recognize where there's uh, fertile ground and they sort of till there instead of, uh, of uh, uh, being hell-bent on just telling the truth. Well, that's... You know, that, that's oh, go ahead, Paul. I, I know, Matt, you have another question, but I just wanted to say that that is such a nuanced and... Uh, smart answer, given uh, our experience in politics, it applies across the board, um, both to, uh, it, it may apply uh, to black politicians, it certainly applies to white politicians in terms of understanding that uh, politics are not always about the absolute uh, honest truth and complete transparency that a lot of politicians have to think very carefully about how to speak their truth, but do it in a way that isn't going to alienate voters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we one of the ways that I've, we've done this work at the Brennan Center is around um, the First Step Act that President Trump signed last year, which is a federal prison reform bill. Right. And we were able to get conservatives in the room and liberals in the room. But when we talk to the Democratic progressive side of the aisle, um, either politicians or nonprofits, it was a matter of racial justice. And when we talk to conservative nonprofits, think tanks, politicians, it was a matter of fiscal conservatism. And for Christian evangelicals, a matter of redemption and second chances at life. And so even though First Step Act is about prison reform that allows some people to earn good time behavior and be released from prison earlier, the, t- the folks that had to come together to make that happen came together for different reasons. And if, if we were hell-bent on making Republicans fess up to this being a racial justice issue and not one of money or redemption, then it doesn't get passed. And if we force the Democratic side, the progressive side, to, to say that this is really a matter of inefficient spending of tax dollars, it doesn't get passed. And so we weren't lying to either side, but you frame your case in a way that brings people together so that they can see what's in it for them on the back end so that better outcomes for more people happen for for us all. You know, speaking of effective political communication, uh, one of the things that really stood out in some of your recent writing is a recognition that I I don't think is widely shared that African-American voters aren't necessarily synonymous with highly liberal democratic base voters. It seems like there's a conflation sometimes when when talking about the democratic base that it's just a mirror image of the Republican base. And we're so used to thinking in our political discourse of Republican equals highly conservative in that realignment that happened since the 60s. Therefore, Democrat equals highly liberal. But you've made a really compelling case that that's, there's a lot more nuance than that. The, the Democratic base is really much more of a coalition that has a lot of diversity in terms of ideology, uh, obviously uh, ethnicity, 
Um, could you help us understand a little bit more some of that nuance when it comes to the African-American voting community? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way is since 1964, about 90% of black voters have voted for the Democratic candidate in every congressional and presidential election. And so when 90% of 45 million people vote one way, that makes it seem like all of those people hold similar politics. And if the Democratic Party is the party that's becoming more and more progressive, then obviously black voters are the most, the most loyal constituency of the party is also becoming more and more liberal and progressive. And it's just not, not true. Um, so the, I think something like 70% of black voters identify as either conservative or liberal. And only just under 25% identify as progressive. So the difference, though, is whether you're a black conservative, liberal, or moderate, you still vote for the Democratic Party because most of these congressional and presidential elections are essentially single-issue direct democracy referenda on civil rights protection. And if you believe that the Democratic Party is better on civil rights protections than the Republican Party, then it doesn't matter if you also want less regulation, if you want lower taxes, if you want um, smaller government, you want stronger, like all the things Republican policy-wise that they're known for, if you like all of those things, but you also like voting rights and you also recognize systemic racism as a problem, then you only really have one party to vote for, and that's the Democratic Party. And so where we begin to see some of the, the Black diversity, political diversity, is in real direct democracy referenda at the state level, where you often see 60-40 splits on things like the same-sex marriage, same-sex marriage amendments from a decade or so ago. You often saw 60-40 splits among Black Americans. Um, and when presidential primaries, you also see that even in this past cycle, you know, the black vote was divided up between about three candidates at any given moment, one on the very far left and then a couple that were uh, more to the center. So there is no such thing as a as homogenous black politics, but there is such a thing as the electoral um, monolith of, of black voters because of, of how we vote. So this nuance often gets lost because of how polarized the parties are now and how the, the binary choice you have when you when civil rights and the end of or the mitigation of racism is the prominent thing in your mind. So party now mutes all of our political diversity because um, it's more important that your voting rights and your ability to to prosper and operate freely in America is that those things are protected and advanced than it is your particular views on any discrete set of policies around taxes or defense or anything like that. So uh, understanding that we are in a in an unprecedented time of change and disruption and we can't really tell yet what uh, it means for demographic shifts and population or geographical shifts um, in terms of migrating out of back out of the cities to rural areas and things like that. Uh, I think it's an underappreciated point that there is a uh, a degree of regional and generational variation in African American political behavior and voting. Um, as you said, black voters are definitely not a monolith. Uh, there, there's a wide variety. Um, how, what are some? Uh, what effect do you think that that we're going to see on uh, the the uh, black voters from what we're dealing with now and what has been happening over the past, say? 
10 years in terms of democratic politics and American politics in general? What, what are we looking at? Yeah, so I think the generational divide is going to be more, more pronounced uh, among, within, among black voters. I think there's an economic class divide that's going to be more pronounced. And I think there's a regional divide that will be more pronounced in the out years. And, and the big reason I believe this is, is uh, one, uh, the more distance we get temporarily from the civil rights movement, the more diverse I think black politics will become. Look, in the Great Migration, when six million black folks left the South between 1910 and 1970, 90-something percent of black people lived in the South prior to the Great Migration, and afterwards only about 50 percent. The other 50 percent now live in the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West. But what all of those new migrants to these new areas had in common was a parent or grandparent that lived in the Deep South. And so they would go home for the summers, they would visit with family, and there was still this cohesion that's centered on the Jim Crow experience. But now you have kids growing up in Chicago, New York, Oakland, whose grandparents also grew up in Chicago, New York, and Oakland, and don't have that same tie to the Deep South. And so now there's a regional character happening um, because there's no common experience, regional experience that, that used to solidify black votes and black politics. And um, you're, the generations are no longer bound by this coming home um, from family reunions or, or just family that still lives in the South. So what does this all mean? This is why we saw Bernie Sanders do extremely well with black voters under 35 in 2016 compared to Hillary Clinton mostly in the Midwest and now West. He still didn't do well with black voters under 30, under 35 in the Deep South. Um, this is why we see um, black, most of black liberals tend to be those that are younger. Um, and as is the case with most Americans, younger folks tend to be more uh, progressive, more liberal than older folks. And we're seeing that within the black community as well. Um, and um, we're also, so there's the region, there's the age and, um, and then there's sort of on the political spectrum, um, the older black voters tend to be concentrated either um, among churchgoers, no matter where you live, but also in the deep south where religiosity is still a major factor. And so while all of this is happening, there's also a growing disparity between black haves and black have nots, which is to say there's growing uh, income and wealth inequality within black America. And so the black middle class is doing better and the black working poor are doing worse relative to one another. And so where there used to be just one degree of separation, or frankly, your next door neighbor might be someone who makes $60,000 less than you. Now you live in different neighborhoods, you go to different schools, you go to different churches, often if you still go to church, and you've got a completely different, you know, sort of like the Cosby show in Good Times, no longer a next door neighbors. They got have it. experiences and that creates different politics. So we're going to take a short break. It's off the record on WKXL with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We're talking with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice about race and politics in America. We are going to take a short break and we will be back. Do not go away.
We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So as you're hunkered in your bunker, you can listen to us on any one of your personal digital devices. We're talking with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, a noted scholar who's working on a book about national solidarity and race relations, a fascinating discussion. Matt Robeson, I know you had a question. I'd like to fast forward us right to the current moment. And you recently, Ted, made a a pretty compelling case that Joe Biden, or or it could be Bernie Sanders, but let's be honest, it's almost certainly Mm -hmm. Joe Biden really needs to select an African-American vice president. Can you take our listeners through that, through the argument? Um, We saw this massive enthusiasm gap for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Is that the reason? Is it something else? Why is that such a political necessity if Democrats want to win in 2020? Yeah, so here's here's the, the line of thinking on this. In 2016, Hillary Clinton essentially lost the Electoral College and and the White House by 77,000 votes over three states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And notably, those three states have highly concentrated area of high Black populations in Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. Uh, And and so we also know that the Black turnout rate in 2016 was 59.6%, which was a seven-point drop-off from what it was in 2012 when Barack Obama ran for re-election when it was about 66 and a half or so percent. Okay, so when you combine those two factors, that she lost the election by 77,000 votes and that there was a seven-point drop-off in black turnout, it stands to reason that if you can return black turnout to just where it used to be, not even where it was when Obama ran, but where it was in 2000, 2004, then you have a better shot of, of the Democrat winning the election if, if the, um, the, the uh, turnout or the, the polls are, are what they were uh, in 16. So the best way to increase black turnout is through descriptive representation. And this is what all the political science literature shows us, that when you have a black candidate on the ballot, um, and that and a candidate that also does uh, deep outreach and, and funds local grassroots organizations through the party or through their, their campaign, those two things in combination increase black turnout. So the argument for Biden selecting a black running mate is all about increasing black turnout across the country, maybe not to 66 and a half percent like it was in 12, but if you can get it up to 62 or 63 percent, you give your chance, you give your campaign a good chance of winning not just Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, but maybe competing in Florida, maybe competing in North Carolina, and um, uh, and that in and of itself becomes enough to, to win the college. Now, it's not, it's not interchangeable, so you can't say, well, just choose a Stacey Abrams or, or Kamala Harris or any black person will do. They have to be um, someone who also inspires black voters to return to the polls in the ways that, that Obama was able to do in 8 and 12. And I don't know who fits the bill perfectly for that, but I know it's probably not Pete Buttigieg, who couldn't win over voters of color. Maybe not be uh, Amy Klobuchar, who also had the same issues. So what the Democratic Party will have to contend with, and then I'll sort of stop here, is if is they have to decide if they think the path to the White House 
are either black voters and increasing turnout, or is it more important to win back white working class voters in the Rust Belt who were Obama Trump voters? And in that case, maybe a Klobuchar or someone can bring them back. But there is no one candidate that will turn up, uh, that will increase black turnout and win back those white working class Obama Trump voters. And so you have to make the strategic calculation of which um, type of candidate gives you the better chance at, at winning uh, back the voters you need to, to win the White House. So let me just follow up on that. Let's um, assume that Joe Biden uh, or Sanders, but likely Biden, follows your advice and uh, he picks a female black vice president who is respected in the black community, acceptable to the white community. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got a completely changed world, however. Uh, you've got coronavirus and the politics of Donald Trump's not just disastrous, but crazy and dangerous leadership over the past few months. And with a public health emergency, uh, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I'm betting, and I, I'd like you to comment on, on, on whether the issues around the public health emergency and what we're seeing in terms of the uh, distraction and chaos are particularly resonant in the African American community because forever in America, uh, the black community has felt the brunt of government indifference, incompetence. Uh, racism and bigotry, which is certainly going to be played out here during this crisis. Am, am I right? Is the coronavirus going to have a particular impact on African-American voting? Does it scramble equations? Um, what, what, what do you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, and so here's what I think. I think, um, one, the biggest impact for black voting behavior from Corona will be the impact the virus has on our economy. And so we are seeing folks now predict that maybe unemployment gets up to 20% over the summer. Now, what we know from history is that whatever the white unemployment rate is, multiply it by two and you get the black unemployment rate. And so if we're 20% nationally, that suggests that maybe the white unemployment rate is about 15, 16%, and the black unemployment rate is maybe 28, 30%. That is a problem. Um, so if the Democrats think, uh, and, and one, like the Brennan Center is nonpartisan, you know, we don't support candidates or anything. So it's just it's strictly just political science analysis here. We know that black voters being angry is not what turns black voters out. So if the Democratic Party believes that anger at Donald Trump is what's going to get black people to the polls, Therefore, we can focus our efforts elsewhere for turnout. That's not a winning argument. Um, the, the second thing is black voters care a lot about the economy, like every other American does. And the top three issues for black Americans are the economy, affordable health care, and education. And if you're at 30% unemployment, um, all of those things become a problem for you. Healthcare becomes a problem. Your economic prospects are a problem. And education, college loans, et cetera, becomes a problem. So the Democratic Party will have to show how their leadership will help these communities recover economically as a way to show them how uh, they will recover from this public health crisis. 
the economic argument that's going to resonate most with the black community because they will be disproportionately affected, harmed by the out, by the uh, effects of, of the pandemic. And this is going to last uh, through the year into next year. And, uh, and, and this is, I think this is the angle that they've got to ex- sort of um, stress the most if they want to have an advantage over uh, Trump come November. Matt, go ahead. Oh, sure. So I want to just, you know, in view of the, the limited time we have left, and I, I could talk about the upcoming election, which I think is creating a lot of stress for uh, all of our listeners, uh, me included. Um, I, I could talk about that forever, but I'd like to maybe on a hopeful note, think a little bit uh, further into the future. And, you know, as you noted earlier, uh, Ted, they, you know, ever since the sort of political realignment of the 1960s ushered in by the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement, um, really the Democratic Party has been the natural home, about a 90% voting rate uh, you you cited, um, for African-American voters. But there have been concerted efforts, especially over the last 20 years by the Republican Party, to try to claw back some of that uh, affinity, um, or very explicitly to depress uh, African-American voter enthusiasm and turnout. Uh, George W. Bush even made a concerted case that perhaps Democrats were taking the black vote for granted. So let's think positively about the fact that we're going to get through the current coronavirus crisis. We're going to get through the 2020 election. As you look forward into the future, what does the Democratic Party have to do to make sure that they are not taking African-American voters for granted? How do they continue to be sort of the go-to political home for African-American political representation? Yeah, so I think it's it's twofold. The first is to ensure representation um, in Congress at the state and local level and that if you know if there's a black politician running for office, the Democratic Party should want that person to be a Democrat and not a Republican. So the representation matters, and also um, begin to continue fighting for civil rights. But in the last few years, we've seen things like voting rights under attack at not just at the state level, but at the Supreme Court, where we saw um, the Voting Rights Act of 60, uh, 65 disempowered uh, because of of some of the provisions in it that the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional. And so um, the Democratic Party will need to keep fighting for access to the ballot, for economic justice, for health equity, all of these sorts of things to ensure a fairer, more equitable existence um, for Black Americans in the country, not just Black Americans, but for all Americans, and to close the, the gaps, the racial disparity gaps across these different socioeconomic factors. Um, and so I think that's, that's how they hold on to it. The, the Republicans, on the other hand, and this has been since Lee Atwater was advising Reagan in the 80s, they just say, if we can get one in five black voters, we may not lose another election. And they've tried to do this through talking about small business, um, facilitating small businesses in black communities by talking, Donald Trump is talking about unemployment rates and talking about criminal justice reform. But um, what they will have to do is come to terms with the fact that civil rights is the preeminent concern for black voters. And so unless and until the Republican Party becomes a pro-civil rights party, their prospects of getting black voters on board is essentially nil beyond the eight to 10% they've been getting traditionally for, for decades. We've seen this happen at the state level. Larry Hogan in Maryland won almost a third of black votes by prioritizing education 
And what black voters really care about, especially in Maryland, where there are a lot of middle class uh, black folks, is a better public school system. And he won 30 percent of the black vote. Uh, and it, I think it was 2018 when he ran. So and this was against the black candidate that he was running against, the black Democrat, Ben Jealous, who used to run the NAACP. And he's still able to get 30 percent. So Republicans can win black votes when they make with the right messaging. But they're fearful, I believe, that a pro-civil rights message will turn off some of their white base. As, as um, And they're, I think they're more interested in keeping that base together than they are in expanding the tent with a more welcoming message. Man, oh man, Ted Johnson, uh, we really appreciate your joining us. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL. Matt Robeson is uh, an author on thealternet.org. He uh, writes um, the blog, amoreperfectunionforum.com, a great deep dive into politics. And Ted Johnson, what a pleasure. This has been one of the greatest shows we've had. Um, Ted is a senior fellow at the Brennan Institute for Justice. What a terrific, terrific public servant. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this to wrap up this week's edition of Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your hunkered, bunkered binge listening. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, Matt, uh, this was a real pleasure today. Um, I really appreciate that you were able to uh, not only read Ted Johnson's work, but, but seduce him to come on to our program and share his extraordinary insights with us about race and politics and the future of the Democratic Party and the nuanced views that it's important that Democrats take when it comes to making sure that, that when we regain power, that we use it wisely and well to make sure that all of Americans, Black Americans, all Americans of color, every race, every gender, that we really do follow up on the promise of equal opportunity, because that is the only future to make sure that America is the country we want it to be. And then we've got to make sure that we not only govern wisely and well, but that we make government effective again, because we've seen what a disaster an effective government is. Um, so thanks, Matt Robeson, for joining me. Um, uh, we'll have Ted Johnson back to talk some more. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to us. Check us out on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. <laughs>